Welcome to the sixth episode of Demol Belkia Season 11 Recaps from Reality TV Warriors. My name is Michael Armstrong, and joining me as always is the Canadian who has many a video where one person takes on a group of 20, Logan Sons. Good afternoon. Oh, God, I love this episode. Yeah, we get an initial Breaking Bad parody, essentially. I had such fun watching this episode earlier. It made me laugh so much. Didn't I say at the start of the season I was expecting Breaking Bad to be referenced at one point or another during the season? Yep, you did. Yeah, and we get a whole intro, especially when they called it Gus's Restaurant, which is the name of the character from Breaking Bad who runs, uh, what's that, El, El Pollo Hermanos. So the fact they called it Gus's Restaurant, I'm thinking, yeah, definitely a Breaking Bad reference. It had everything I wanted in a Belgium Mole episode, because not only were all three challenges very entertaining, but also, more importantly, there are a ton of sight gags just for us. Yeah. I can't help but feel that the Yakima reference was very, very specific to me. I can't help but feel that those adverts on the bus were specifically for us to laugh at. Please tell me you noticed the pediatrician one. The pediatrician? Oh no. So, you know the... Skipping ahead, obviously, a little bit to the last challenge. You know the... Um, where they have to pair up the composite sketch to the bloke in the advert? Yep. They lingered on on an advert for a pediatrician, which had a tagline that is 100% just a sight gag for us. So the sight gag was Walter Dennis, pediatrician, quote, I touch your kids in a legal way. (laughs) Oh, (laughs) jeez. And they lingered on this for a good five seconds. (laughs) They've gone all in on the sight gags this season. Yeah. There were a ton of them in those posters. Every single poster that we saw had some sort of wonderful English language pun in it. But that one especially, I had to rewind it to make sure that I hadn't misread that tagline. Because that is very near to the knuckle even for this show. It's too bad they didn't name the criminals after us. I was half expecting it, to be honest. I'm beginning to think that this season is just sort of catering to the English language audience more than every other season has before. It makes sense when they're when they're in America. Yeah, no, but it, it feels like even though Jill has known for what five years at this point that there is a sizable English language community who watch this show, it feels like they're finally starting to go, We know you're watching it. We don't necessarily approve of your tactics to watch it, but we're gonna make this show as funny as possible for you. Yeah, that might be more of a Veer thing than a Jill Jill thing. Yeah, it feels to me like they are very much wink-wink-nudge-nudging towards the English language community at this point. I'm not opposed to it. It makes episodes easier to watch. Yeah, it makes episodes easier to watch, and it makes me far more confident that in two weeks' time when I'm in Antwerp for the uh, for the finale that I'll actually be able to understand everything. But also, it makes these episodes way more fun to cover where we can just go and rewind and laugh at things and actually understand what they're getting at. But before we actually get into the the episode proper, how has your week been? Uh, busy, busy, busy week. Yeah, you were saying off air that you've been doing a lot of uh, a lot of trivia this week. Yeah, three days, three days of trivia outings. I'm glad that's decreasing a bit uh, in the coming weeks. I've had a very productive week at Harmstone Heights. I finally got the mattress that was actually delivered on Thursday. I know that was on the uh, the bingo card, which we'll come to in a minute. And I'm actually, the day that this comes out, going to be spending my first night at Harmstone Heights. Ooh, spooky. It's proper, uh, proper sleep over time. It's like Luigi's Mansion. And I have also, you'll be pleased to know, chased up Amazon to try and get them to fix my fucking address. And they've managed to get it to within about a mile now. So we're, we're slowly making progress on it. Within a mile? That's not bad. That's not too far for deliveries. Good exercise. Yeah, if you search the um, the Amazon lockers or whatever, it still defaults to the location 18 miles away. But actually, if you search my postcode, it's within a mile now. So we're getting there very slowly. And I've had a very productive week actually catching up on television as well, because I'm completely caught up on Race Across the World. I need to catch up on that too. What, four episodes behind? Five. Five? Oh, pretty much the whole season then. <laughs> yeah. How many's left? Like three episodes? There's three more episodes to air, one of which is tomorrow night. Yeah, so I've caught up on Race Across the World. I'm completely up to date, and as a result, I really, really, really want to go back to Canada now, which is obviously the entire purpose of the Canadian Tourist Board encouraging Race Across the World to film there. 
and I am one now two episodes behind on Celebrity Hunted as well. Oh yeah, uh, another one aired about an hour ago as of the recording of this episode, but I'm one maybe two episodes behind on that, and that's been very entertaining too. Yeah, with Race Across the World, yeah, those first two seasons were really good, so I'm glad to hear that that they can film a season of a reality show entirely within Canada and receive high praise for it. Oh, it's it's spectacularly mean the route that they've done. I know I've mentioned this to you privately, but they started in Vancouver, then it was it was Vancouver, Haida Gawaii, Dawson City, then back down to Banff, then up to Churchill, Manitoba, a town of 900 people where even Amazing Race Canada won't go. Yeah, the polar bears outnumber the people in Churchill. That's the famous thing there. Yeah. Um, and then it's an island on Lake Huron. The episode that airs tomorrow finishes in Quebec City. Then it's Liverpool, Nova Scotia, and then St. John's. But the zigzagging north and south thing is so spectacularly mean for them to do, especially on a limited budget. They didn't take them into Nunavut? Uh, they did during the Churchill rest period. They took them into Hudson Bay and then uh, let them see the polar bears. So technically, the only places in Canada that won't have at least had them go through is the Northwest Territories and PEI, I think. Those aren't... Well, PEI... Did they film there before or after the big disaster? Probably before, right? It was last May they filmed, or they started filming. I think the disasters happened right after I got back into Canada. So, yeah, they would have filmed just before those disasters hit. And um, with PEI, it's not a big population. There's really not that much to do there anyway that you wouldn't get in the other maritime provinces. Yeah. I just think it's really interesting how they've managed to basically do what Amazing Race Canada tried to do originally and visit literally as many places as is physically possible. Yeah, in one season they visited 11 of the for Race Across the World to visit 11 of the 13 provinces and territories and then the Amazing Race Canada the, the past few seasons even filming entirely within Canada every time. They still only have done five provinces and one territory over the past three seasons, I think. Yeah. And they're filming at the moment. Yeah, they're in smithers of all places. Excellent. Yeah, I can't... I can't... I mean, I predicted it. I'm not surprised. But it's just funny how small smithers is and the fact that they travel so little internationally and they've run out of places to the point that they have to go to smithers to keep fresh legs in British Columbia. Yeah, without this turning into a race across the world season, they have now recommissioned it for Series 4, and um, I mean, my suspicion, they've got to do Africa next, surely. Africa so... Not to have a... Africa is a continent and not a, not a country moment here. I can't help but generalize, but it's so tough to navigate through most of the continent of Africa, especially for a big, big uh, reality TV film crew. I know, but they've proven with Canada that they're not opposed to doing massively zigzaggy routes anymore. I feel like Africa's probably the most logical place for them to go. I mean, they have done everywhere else now. They went from Europe through to Singapore, Canada, and then everywhere from Mexico down to Argentina. It's the only spot big landmass that's missing from Race Across the World after just three seasons. Yeah, short of doing a different start and end point and doing something similar to London to Singapore again. I can't see them doing anything other than Africa next series. Yeah, maybe they try to do Cairo to Cape Town somehow. Yeah. Swerve around South Sudan and Sudan at the moment. And Somalia. Well, exactly. They They absolutely could say, don't travel through X countries. They've done that sort of stuff before. Yeah, that, that's going to be... That's a tough one. There's a lot of places that you just outright cannot travel through safely. Yeah. You can't go through Somalia, Eritrea, Libya, Chad. <laughs> yeah, there's no way now they're going through Chad. And the final thing that I wanted to mention before we get into this episode proper, I did allude to it a few minutes ago, but whilst I was in Halston Heights on Thursday, I got a message on Father's Bar's mole chat Discord and laughed my head off because I'm going to say a friend of the podcast of Fuzzy Orange has created a podcast bingo card which they're now trying to guess the topics that we talk about on each episode after we've recorded them and before we actually release 
I will say last week's one, hilarious suggestions, pretty off the mark with some of them. But I mean, I love all of this nonsense. So please, anyone, send more of that sort of stuff in that just makes me giggle because it really, really tickled me last week. Yeah, that was awesome to see. Yeah. I just wanted to give a shout out to Fuzzy Orange for that because it really, really made me laugh last week. So last week's guesses were 15 plus people had at least a lot of lasting first suspicions, and I think it was 11 or 12, depending on how you count it. Debate who has the most awkward one-on-one time with a robo-loved one. Don't think there was much of a debate. It was comfort. Uh, Michael's package, bed frame is finally delivered. Tickety-tick-tick. Michael's been <laughs> from Logan's team. Might have been quite entertaining, but no, after last week's episode was never going to happen. Reference to Logan's monkey videos, I'm pretty sure that happened. It usually does. Ruben remains both Michael and Logan's top suspect. Bindles picks Thomas. Bindles did pick Thomas, I think, but I mean, our top suspect last week was Lancelot. Logan giggles over nude Steve Teo movie scene. Don't think he noticed that he had his dick out. Uh, the announcement was a Jill interview for the end of the season. I mean, half right, if I can corner him. And debate on whether the overheard voice at the supermarket is a native English speaker or a crew member. We ignored that. Not bad. So if they if they get a blackout one of these weeks, will an old lady just get really pissed off with uh, Fuzzy Orange? Yeah, we'll just send an old lady in if there's a blackout or if there's a full house. I've got it, motherfuckers. I have also just realized that in my haste of during this episode, I didn't actually write a previously on thing. Wait, do we need to? Uh, I mean, it's tradition at this point. Oh, wait, wait. I clapped twice. That means that means I do the previously on segment? I mean, you can do if you want. Uh, let's see. My memory's a bit hazy. It's been a long week. I, previously on the Mobelkia, Arizona, there was a DeLorean, I think. No. It wasn't last week, but yeah. Oh, couple couple weeks ago, uh, somebody was executed at the end of the episode. Uh, Lancelot violated a robot. Yes, he did. That is last week. Thomas also also violated a robot. Strongly hinted at it. Anyway, the contestants still couldn't understand a word that Thomas or Lancelot were saying, despite all of them speaking the same language. Lancelot went home. That was, that was the person I was thinking of. And everyone kept talking about how good she was with a whip. And that was that was the episode. I mean, it's a slightly different style to the normal one, but... And no, and no, no Passfragen were earned. No Jokers, no Passfragen. And that was because of comfort. So in summary, previously the final six met up with their robotic loved ones in a supermarket and a barbecue, and Reuben got sprayed in the face with condiments, while Comfort refused to fly to try and stop Passfragen being earned. However, Lisa Lot was grounded, as she was the fifth person sent home. You didn't clap twice, Michael, to do the previously on segment. Now everyone's going to be confused. That wasn't, that wasn't your role. Oh, okay. Now it's switched. Wouldn't it be funny if my lights started going off and on then? <laughs> And we open an American diner, and a man with an earpiece walks out and gets into a car, and the mole speaks to him over the earpiece. Hello, it's me. Can you hear loud and clear? Start the car. Let's do this. The driver does a really good job of of copying the Flemish accent there. He does. I thought that. He must have at least a working knowledge of Dutch. Because that is a very integral role in this episode. You can't afford for someone to get that wrong. Especially as he was doing it live. Like The mole was reacting to what people were saying eventually. So he must have at least a working knowledge of Dutch to be able to do that job properly. Maybe one of his parents or or just he studied well. Yeah, I don't know. So the episode title is That Taxi Driver's Been Staring at Us from Unsurprisingly Taxi Driver. And it is day 13 in Tucson. Day, day 14. Set thirteen on the screen. Oh yeah, you're right. Remember, adapting, Michael. It's oh, all about adapting. If I say day fourteen, it could mean eleven, it could mean twelve, or the correct answer, thirteen. Right. I don't know your suspicions this week, but please tell me he's still number one. <laughs> uh, yes. Yes. Unsurprising. <laughs> the, my whole order did not change. I, it just can't. I just can't envision it being anybody other than Lancelot or Reuben at this point, because Reuben did screw the group out of five thousand euros. 
this week. If Lancelot is not the mole, he is maybe the most sabotaging contestant in Belgian mole history. Because he sabotaged at least two of the three challenges in this episode, quite blatantly. And then whenever he doesn't sabotage, Ruben's had some big sabotages each week, so... It's tough to pick out a front runner between the two of them. Lancelot seems to sabotage more frequently, but Ruben seems to always pack a heavier punch when he d- does decide to sabotage. So it is day 13 in Tucson. Gilles has provided them with lunch and a note. Like a proud parent. He says he's looking for one person who wants to take on a group of 20 people and learn a lesson. The other four will assist from a distance. He also says, don't forget your lunchboxes, and kind of points out, there is no relevance to the lunchboxes, it's just for fun. There is no payoff to him saying, don't forget your lunchboxes, like it's going to be an advantage. Sometimes the lunchbox is just a lunchbox. And they say, as a geography teacher, Thomas is the obvious person, and he says he's got a cool job, but he doesn't feel like teaching here. And they instead choose Lancelot. Which, again, surprises me, because we've said it repeatedly that Lancelot seems to be the least comfortable with speaking English. Yeah. I am wondering, given that we both suspect him as number one this week, whether his reluctance to speak English has been a bit of an act. Because he was pretty confident with his English in this challenge. The thing is, I guess there's a difference between fluency in speaking a foreign language and confidence speaking a foreign language. Because I think in terms of fluency... Comfort seems to be the strongest, just based on her interactions throughout the season, and especially when she was going in and out of the library. I don't think Lancelot pulls out the word index when talking to the librarian. No, I agree. So the group goes to Pima Community College. Lancelot doesn't know what he'll be teaching, though, so the other four will need to assist him, either by unleashing their inner bookworm or playing pranks. Obviously, given the four people who were there, Ruben and Tucson end up being the pranksters, leaving Comfort and Thomas as bookworms. This was like a mix of uh, the Key and Peel substitute teacher sketch, as well as Senior Chang from Community. I mean, I'll get into this, but I love this challenge so much. I know not everyone does. I know some people thought it was stupid, but I love how deliciously awkward this first challenge is. It's essentially like the Vietnamese polite dinner dinner table challenge, right? Yeah, it's essentially the Vietnamese dinner party challenge with the added complication of just really, really stupid production gags. Like, in the <laughs> Vietnamese dinner party, they had the, the hilarious mini challenges that people had to do to earn money. In this one, you have production putting all of their effort into doing the most basic bitch PowerPoint presentation possible. We start with Comic Sans. We have the wonderful crossed-out stock images. We have so many beautiful sight gags in the PowerPoints that we see. It's like it was made by a 10-year-old, and it's delightful. My favourite... Well, there are two favourite things about the PowerPoint. One, the sound effect with Belgium, the, the best country in the world, with the horn sound effect. And then any time the... But it's fun fact time that swiffles onto the screen. That killed me. That that was three for three with making me laugh out loud. I know not everyone enjoyed this challenge, but you're wrong. It was brilliant. Because they know exactly what they're doing on this show, and they know the audience that they're appealing to. And let's be honest, the audience that they're appealing to for this season probably is the English language audience where they can sneak all these stupid jokes past. But if you think of a stereotypical child's PowerPoint, you obviously go for Comic Sans because it's the most fun of all the fonts. You obviously go for a lot of the really silly, sarcastic commentary that is in the PowerPoint, which we only get a glimpse of sometimes. But there's certain things that you can tell production are just egging Lancelot on a little bit with things that he needs to say to them, like, oh, but I've forgotten about this. Oh yeah, you know the red lions? Yeah, they were actually they're actually the red the red dragons. It's just delightful, I have to say. Whoever came up with that PowerPoint in production needs a raise because it was it was just wonderful. I like how just how European of a response Lancelot had when he said, Oh, how is everybody? And they said, Great, great, how are you? Super. I'm thinking, oh man, that's the most Flemish response possible. <laughs> I would just love to know what the 
what the students were told before this? Well, there were cameras clearly in the classroom, so they knew it had to be... I mean, they probably thought it was for a Belgian TV show or something. Yeah, I wonder whether they were told that it was deliberately a joke beforehand, or whether they were just told, oh, it's this visiting lecturer and uh, and we're going to film it for posterity. Well, knowing Papa Bear Jill DaCosta, I would assume he usually operates with the less information you give them, the better. So I'm guessing they were not given much information. No, I'd just love to know at what point these students found out that it was obviously meant to be a bit of lighthearted entertainment. I think it's when Lancelot said 20 once instead of 21st. So after Lancelot's lecture, the class will take a test, and if more than half of the students pass, they will earn 3,000 euros. Comfort and Thomas can assist him remotely and talk to him through an earpiece. He turns the PowerPoint on to find out he's lecturing on, obviously, his specialist subject of Belgium. The lecture is split into three parts, history and politics, sport, and arts and culture. Lancelot has some ellipses on the PowerPoint, so he has to fill them in, and if he doesn't know something and he can rely on Thomas and Comfort, he'll be able to find everything they need in the library and they have 15 minutes per category to research the answers. Who was the ninth, seventh, ninth or seventh king of Belgium? I just love Lancelot's level of bullshit in this challenge. <laughs> because if he's not the mole, he was absolutely trying to mole this challenge. If he is the mole, his stalling tactics were wonderful. Because not only did we obviously see it at the end with him deliberately not doing the fun fact to make sure they didn't earn one of the points, but also even the clapping thing. Because that takes up time. It takes up time, but it also takes the students out of the focusing mode and has the risk of them not writing things down because they've got to swap notes again. It's a brilliant distraction tactic that you don't necessarily think of. Yeah, well... If you weren't the mole, what would be the purpose of doing that? I mean, he frames it as, if I notice you're not focusing, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make you swap places so you are focusing again and wake you up a bit. But it doesn't wake them up a bit. It confuses them. Yeah. Shuffling for no reason whatsoever, yeah. Completely taking their focus off the lesson. And, to, and everyone's probably in the mindset of having to stand up and move within the next couple of minutes. Yeah. Everyone is on edge immediately because they know they might have to swap places at any point. All that was missing was him just randomly shouting into people's ears. What he should have done is learned all their names and told them how worthless they were and found out that, for example, one of them was a pastry chef and shoved a cake in his face. Or asked another student what sort of name that is. (laughs) So Toast and Reuben can unlock three fun facts for Lancelot to give, one per category. To do that, though, they got to perform some mini-challenges, the first of which is firing paper balls, knocking down anyone who has been a Belgian Prime Minister. And Lancelot must have the fun fact within the last minute of each lecture. Well, I mean, he can have it, but he's just not going to do anything with it. Yeah, he's going to absolutely block it. Comfort and Thomas find the year that princesses can begin to inherit the throne, and that was 1991, but Lancelot tells the class that it's 1992... However, of course, he does his usual bullshit thing of going, just because I've told you things doesn't mean that it's true, and it's actually 1991, and corrects himself eventually, telling them to adapt. Yeah, you don't... That's a a pretty big one to mess up between 1992 and 1991. Yeah, especially when, if you're the mole, you know what the question's going to be, which is, in what year was it made so princesses could inherit the throne? I mean, technically... Technically, it wouldn't have been the princesses can inherit the throne. Presumably, it would have been that a princess could inherit the throne if she was firstborn. Because the same rule was brought in in the UK a few years ago. Right. So the pranksters missed the first fun fact as Reuben hit the wrong prime minister. And to earn the second fun fact, Reuben and Toast must roll someone in an office chair into one of the boxes painted on the floor to answer a trivia question about the Olympics. They can practice as much as they want, but as soon as the chair stops in a box, it counts as their answer. And they know the answer is silver and get the correct one and have to run with their fun fact to Thomas and Comfort. And Comfort does a lot better in the library than Thomas does throughout this challenge. Comfort knows which books to grab. Thomas doesn't seem to understand the Dewey Decimal System. For a geography teacher, Thomas really seems to struggle with the geography of a library. Yeah, he just ends up piling so many books high that only Hermione Granger would be capable of getting through them. Yeah. 
And I know you think that they're always in the teaching position, as do I. But excluding the teaching position, do you think the mole would rather be in the bookworm side or the prank side? Well, the prank side, you only control three of the nine questions, right? Yeah. But they still got two out of three. Because Ruben screwed up one, but he could have, if he was the mole, I guess the chair one would be tough to screw up as the mole if you're not the one that's pushing the other person in the chair. Because it was twos who pushed Ruben, right? On the successful one, I think it was Toast in the chair. And it was Ruben who pushed? I think so, yeah. And then the th- what was the third mini game? Third mini game was the recreating the Son of Pan painting. Right. By flipping the apple into his mouth. That one, I feel like if you were the mole, you could make sure you didn't earn that one. Yeah. So yeah, you control three out of nine, but they could still get the other six in the between the teacher and the and the bookworms there. So they'd stand a pretty good chance of passing the challenge, even if you're the mole and you're doing the mini games. I can confirm that Ruben was in the chair when they landed it in the silver box. He was he was in the chair? Yeah. Yes, yeah, so a toast pushed. Ruben uh... And who caught the apple? Uh Ruben caught the apple. Because Toast tries it originally and then uh... And then he sucks at it, so Ruben does it instead. And they still had more than enough time for it. It's not like he got it. He caught the apple at the last second and then dash into the into the room. He does it within six minutes of starting. Oh, so plenty of time. So if he was the mole, he could have easily wasted another couple of minutes before catching it and still look like he contributed to the challenge. Yeah. So for the final category, they must catapult an apple into a ring held in their mouth. Ruben manages it within six minutes. And I also love, presumably this is a joke deliberately directed at me because I mentioned it last year, but there is a joke in the lecture that you can't photograph the Atomium because it is a copyrighted image in Belgium, which it is. It's something I know I mentioned last year because it's quite a... Uh, <laughs> it's come quite, up multiple times. <laughs> yeah, it, it's quite a famous fact in the fact that due to a quirk of Belgian copyright, if you take a picture of the Atomium, you technically have to pay money to the guy who created it. How often does that get enforced? Oh, it wouldn't get enforced, but it is a quirk of Belgian copyright. It doesn't just apply to the Atomium, by the way. It applies to any sort any of artwork. Pu- public artwork, yeah. But the Atomium is the most famous example of it. And as we said, Lancelot fumbles the fun fact and runs out of time to relay it. He does it in a really blatantly obvious way as well, if you have tunnel vision in like we do. It's not subtle at all, just with how much he was delaying it. I mean, you can't help but think, is he trying to act like the mole or i guess because they could because the contestants heard him right they all heard him so where they're like just just spit out the information just spit it out man yeah the pertinent piece of information in it is what crime uh, marguerite was accused of which was the counterfeit and that was the very last bit of the facts so he stalled enough time so he didn't even get out the first bit of him being on the 500 belgian franc note it was just bizarre the way he did it, where I'm thinking, is he just trying to, is nobody onto him as the mole, and he's just getting more blatant with his sabotages? I mean, he's obviously not on the same level as Lenny, but it does feel like a Lenny all over again situation, where nobody's onto him, so production have to go to him, mm, you need to be a little bit less subtle now, just get on with it, start getting people to suspect you. But the key piece of information that was actually on the test that they were looking for was the crime that he was accused of doing, which is counterfeiting. Yeah, and he doesn't even... He barely even starts the story, which is funny because in the first theme he said, I'm going to tell you a story that has nothing to do with what will be on your test. Don't write it down. Because that is another tactic, if you are the mole in the teaching position as well, is just overwhelm them with facts. Yes, they can use their notes for it, but if you overwhelm them with facts, they are maybe going to not be able to pick out the correct information from their notes. Or when he tried to write down the name of that one person, the <laughs> silver medalist, he just gives up on spelling it out. Yeah, the horse long jumper from the sports round. <laughs> yeah. He doesn't even bother spelling her surname. And there's a brilliant bit where where the editors cut to one of the uh, the girls in the class and she's just looking very confused at him. Just like, I'm recreating this spelling, but you don't seem to have actually finished it. Yeah, L-A-N-D long hyphen. <laughs> Even I can't spell it, and I'm from Belgium. Or when he gets corrected on the number of players on a basketball team. 
He's just like, yeah, we have a different number of people in Belgium. <laughs> yeah. We play six on six for more. We just we just think there's more action that way. So when everyone reunites, they find out that less than half of the group passed the test, meaning they earn nothing of 3,000 euros for the challenge. And to perpetuate even more American stereotypes, they head to a roller rink in the evening. Obviously, Ruben stacks it. They noticed that when they were looking at the papers, because Jill says, by the way... I don't know if this would be done in most challenges, but but Jill even invites them to look at how all of the tests were graded as if to have the contestants verify that Lancelot really screwed up his role in the challenge and see how many times students scored four out of nine instead of five so that they could all see, oh yeah, Lancelot not telling that final fact was the difference in this challenge. It's, he's the only reason why it didn't succeed. Yeah, this feels to me like... They're deliberately going, come on guys, none of you are onto him yet, get on with it. It feels like a seriously wise up situation when it, when Jill goes, oh, here's all the tests if you want to have a look at them and see how close you were, wink wink. You just put them all in the most pivotal role of the challenge, how foolish of you. No wonder you didn't earn any money today. Yeah. So they wake up on day 14. Well, what about the roller rink? Yeah, I mentioned the roller rink. You didn't have anything to say about it. Yeah, Lancelot hitting on two women at the at the roller rink. I talked about the roller rink, but you went back, so I just kept going forward. Adapt, adapt, Michael. You need to adapt to the situation. <laughs> this is just going to become a running joke now, isn't it? Yep. So they wake up on day 14 and are taken separately by the taxi driver we saw earlier to their next location. He stops in the parking lot of Gus Ballon's restaurant and turns around to relay the mole's words. 50 metres behind the taxi is the van containing the mole, and the mole tells them that they are going to be playing a game against the mole, one versus four, and they will be able to see the mole sabotaging live. I like how the guy says, don't you recognise me? It's me, the mole. And I was waiting for one of them to say, Steve Tao? The only way that this twist could have been, well, it's not a twist, but you know what I mean. The only way this could have been even better is if they'd reused some of the old slogans that they've used to advertise Belkia before. Mainly, I'm thinking Hebiomiga Mist, which is my favourite campaign, the Mexico one, where they, they sprayed the mole thumbprint onto some sheep randomly and um, did loads of things around the slogan Hebiomiga Mist. I'm surprised that uh, Van Bool wasn't the driver. Yeah, because he is on location. Because he was on location, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I don't think we've actually talked about this in the episode, but uh, Gilles Van Bool seems to be part of the production crew for this season because he's been he's been helping out a lot with the actual behind-the-scenes stuff. I think part of the reason why he would be on this season specifically is, I've mentioned it before, but his English sounds almost like a New York accent. Yeah. Yeah, he's definitely been educated in America or something. Yeah. Did we ever have a chance to ask him that? I don't think we did. But yeah, de- he definitely, the way the way he speaks definitely sounds like an American education. Yeah. Something else we haven't really mentioned is the theory that this might be the last season of Belgian Mole for a little while. And I know we've talked about that before, but apparently the rumour is they were planning on having a little break after Canary Islands, and then everything went wrong in Canary Islands. So they decided to do one more season and do a victory lap, basically. And I would say that if this season is going to be the last one of Belgian Mole for a little while, not only would I be devastated because, you know, it's my favourite show to cover every year, but they have picked a blinder to finish it on. This was a brilliant episode, and this has been a brilliant season so far, with three episodes left. Yeah, I hope it's hope it's not the last one because I'm not going to the freaking finale this year. <laughs> yeah, if it's the last one, you're going to be gutted because you're not going. But if it is the last one, they've they've picked a really good one to finish with, I would say. But there have been in a lot of previous episodes references to classic stuff from previous seasons of the Belgian Mole reboot, and I think if the taxi driver had turned around and said something like, you know, nothing or have you missed me. That sort of stuff. I think that would have been quite an interesting reference to to bring in. One of the big slogans that they've used in the past. Right. So during the game, the mole will signal to their puppet how to play, and a lot of money can be earned, but a lot of money can also be lost. Toast is first up, and the candidates receive a stack of cards with a positive amount of money on, and the mole's puppet receives the same, but with negative amounts. 
Each stack also contains one card worth nothing, which will stop the game, and they can draw as many cards as they like, but once someone draws a stop card, they're worth zero for that round. The total of the two cards when everyone stops is what each round will be worth. How do you think you would play this as the mole? There isn't a huge amount of money at stake here, right? Well, in theory, in theory, they could have dropped 5,000 euros in this challenge. I guess encourage whoever's in the chair to always just keep going for it, hoping that a stop card comes up. Yeah, there's a 14,000 euro spread in this challenge, potentially. Okay, so that's pretty significant. So the mole has a big role here. Yeah, because in each round, the mole can lose 1,000 euros from the pot. But then every round after Toast is worth up to 2,000 euros if they get the copper version or not right. I guess with the mole, they always want to go minus 300 or minus 400. So contestants will be more inclined to draw cards more frequently so that they're willing to risk it for more money, but also risk getting a stop card. Yeah, I think the mole's best tactic is to egg whoever's in the chair on a bit more. Because, as you said, you want them to get a zero card every time, preferably. But you also know the odds of you getting a zero card and can just keep going until until you get what you want. But also there is the inherent risk in you keeping going in that you've then got to signal more to the puppet. Yeah. More more chances for somebody to inter- intercept a tell. So each stack, assuming there was no no amendments made, like with the the cover version twist, there was a one in twenty chance of them getting a zero card. Yeah, those aren't very high odds. And there was also a one in twenty chance of them getting the thousand euro card. And then eventually two thousand. Yeah, because the distributions were one one thousand euro card, one zero card, three four hundred euro cards. Four 300 euro cards, five 200 euro cards, and six 100 euro cards. Then obviously you add in the, the one 2000 euro card or, or change the one stop card to two stop cards. Depending on how they do with the cover. Right. I wish they would have done a full on Arrested Development parody with the middleman guy being just act the same way as the one for George, uh, George Bluth Sr. when he's under house arrest. There's always money in the diner. There's always money in the roller rink. So I wonder when, after the challenge, if they had, to, if the mole had to make the guy look into a mirror to tell him he was fired. So Toast draws 100 euros and the mole draws 400 euros. The mole has 20 seconds to signal to the puppet as to whether they're drawing or not. And conveniently, during that time, the waitress will come over and distract everyone else with pie or coffee or anything else. Was the waitress the same as the as April, the card mechanic? Did April do both roles? Uh, yes, she did. So waitress by day, and then uh, takes part in facilitating underground gambling games at night. Yeah, do you remember in the Oregon season when Art had that really awkward conversation with the woman sat at the bar in the Spot the Difference Underground Challenge? Oh, I vaguely remember. I know the challenge. That's basically the purpose that April's serving in this. She's just she's just there to entertain Papa Bear, basically. Yeah. So Toast draws until he finds a thousand euros, and that earns six hundred euros for the pot because the mole stops. Thomas is then second, and from him on, everyone is challenged to identify if a song that Jill plays is a cover or an original. If they are correct, a two thousand euro card goes into their pile, but if they are wrong, a stop card goes in instead. Thomas's song is I Will Always Love You, one of the most famous covers in music history. He thinks that it is a cover, and he's correct, and gets the 2,000 euro card added. Did you also play along with it? I did indeed. I knew this one. I know that it is famous as being a Dolly Parton song, because I've heard her tell the story quite a few times in interviews. Yeah, this one was, a, was an easier one, but apparently if it was Ruben or, well, anyone younger than Thomas, they did not seem to know. I thought this was quite famous, because Dolly has said a few times that basically she recorded the song and then she didn't know that Whitney Houston's cover of it was on the Bodyguard soundtrack until she heard it on the radio. She was driving and then had to pull over, I think it was, because she hadn't heard Whitney's version of it. And then she probably thought, well, no radio station's going to play my version of it ever again. And then she probably thought, ka-ching, because this is going to make me a fortune. And it did. 
Yeah, like Marvin Gaye. Marvin Gaye's about to sue and get a whole bunch more royalties from an Ed Sheeran song. He succeeded with Blurred Lines. Granted, well, not him specifically, but... Yeah, I was going to say his uh, estate. His, the, there's his a small estate. problem with Marvin Gaye suing anyone, I think. <laughs> he died. <laughs> the fact that to, to quote my secret activity from earlier, he's a decomposing composer. Oh, like Rachel Riley, one of her jobs. Yeah. So Thomas draws 400 euros against the mole's 300 and immediately chooses to stop. The mole then draws again and gets minus 200. They draw minus 100 on the third wave and then minus 400 and stop for a total of zero. Ruben is third and also plays cover original and it is Adele's version of Bob Dylan's Make You Feel My Love. Yet again, fairly famous cover, but of course Ruben says original. I was When I heard, heard that I was thinking, I don't even know for sure like just that song on its own would be an original or cover but because adele was singing i thought it has to be a cover yeah it's as far as i'm aware the one major cover that adele has done but i remembered it from when she released it as a single and yeah i knew for certain that that was a cover and more specifically a bob dylan cover yeah my dad would know that he's gone to multiple bob dylan concerts Ruben draws 100 euros, the mole draws minus 100, Ruben gets 400, the mole minus 300, Ruben stops as does the mole for a total of 100. And lots and lots of voice squeaks from the sidelines. It was the coffee that made me squeak. Maybe it's a tell. Comfort then goes forth, and her song is Killing Me Softly, which she currently says is a cover. Yeah, that was I knew that was a cover. Yeah, again, another pretty, pretty big gimme, I would say. The only difficult one is Girls Just Want to Have Fun. I didn't know that was a cover. I assumed it was a cover. It would have been a toss-up if I'd got that one. Yeah, none of them were originals. I just didn't write. No, they weren't. Because I'm aware of the other three. I'm just not aware of the Girls Just Want to Have Fun original. Yeah, I thought I heard somewhere it was a cover, so I guess that one. But yeah, the Fuji's one, though, I knew. It, that wasn't a guess like the Adele one. The Fuji's one, I knew 1,000% was a cover. Yeah, I was fairly confident that Killing Me Softly was a cover. I had no idea Girls Just Want to Have Fun was. And then even Papa Bear says, yeah, Killing Me Softly has been covered about 10 or 15 times over the years. Comfort's Round, I have to say, is probably my favorite of the five because she just keeps gambling. Well, because it was such a, my, my, that's what I mean. It was such a small amount of the mole was playing Take Out of the Pot that she just says, well, just keep going. So inevitably, she did lose money for them. Yeah, because she has 400 euros, the mole gets minus 200. She redraws 100, the mole stops. Then she draws 100, 200, 300, 200, 300, 100, 200, 100, <laughs> and then a zero card for a total of minus 200 euros. That's just bad luck there. Yeah, it is. Because I think the odds odds indicate she should have gotten a 1,000 or the 2,000 card at some point. Yeah, so there would have been a 2,000 and a 1,000 in there, which is 2 in 21. She would have had a 1 in 7 chance of getting 400, because I think it's 3 of them. So yeah, to get such a bad run is pretty pretty unlucky statistically. It is too late in the evening for me to work out exactly what the odds are of her doing that, but yeah, it's pretty unlucky. She only had a 1 in 11 chance of drawing that, that zero card. Yeah, everyone says, wow, that's the biggest sabotage Comfort has, has done all season. And to not even hit a 400 card is... Is very unlucky because at that point she would have had like a 2 in 11 chance of getting a 400 and a 4 in 11 chance of getting 400 or higher. In other words, she shouldn't be going to a casino anytime soon. No, she shouldn't. So Lancelot is the last person up and he, as we said, gets girls just want to have fun. He says original and is incorrect. And he gets plus 400, the mole minus 100, and he stops immediately. The mole then draws minus 400 and stops for a total of 500 euros of 9,000 for the challenge. At least they didn't lose money. But for once, the the house was against the mole here. Yeah, the execution, Jill takes the piss out of them for not really earning any money in this episode, but I don't think you can really attribute much blame to them not earning too much money in this challenge. It was more of a meet-the-mole challenge, right? The money wasn't really what was at stake here. It was everyone sizing each other up, trying to pick up on tells and fake who who was faking different tells, rubbing their eyebrows. Uh, there should have been some funny fake tells here. I, I did laugh that everyone was trying to pretend that they were giving the puppet instructions. 
Yeah, touch touch their glasses. Um, cough really, really loud, loudly. Randomly yelp. Start clucking like a chicken. There were some weird tells in in this challenge. So on day fifteen, they are driving to the next challenge, and there is a lot of chat about broken cacti and how it takes seventeen years for them to grow a branch. Yeah, it was fun to it was fun fact time again. It was. This is the fun fact that they missed out on in uh, in the first round. That's all it is. They just needed the knowledge. If this was season ten, at least I, I think we would have lost. Uh, we we would have probably lost Manu to a falling cacti on her, just with the luck that production was having last season. If they filmed in Arizona, oh yeah, we had uh, we had Anka break her arm. We had Philippe have a nervous breakdown. Nella. You know, shattered, broke her, shattered her ankle, and yeah, Manu just—we uh, lost Manu, who's now in critical condition because of a falling cacti. So when they stop at a drive-through for coffee, they get a note from Jill telling them to split into two detectives and three people who don't want to hit the brakes. They choose Thomas, Toast, and Lancelot as the non-brake team, and they get to learn how to drive a bus. And it is like driving a car, but thirty foot longer. <laughs> yeah. Otherwise, it's identical. Yeah. The quote-unquote FBI ring, also known as Ruben and Comfort, and they're told that there is a bomb on the bus and they cannot drive slower than 20 miles an hour. The good old Flemish Bureau investigation. No, the Flemish bullshit inspectors. And the bus has enough fuel for one hour and one hour only. I love this challenge. This was a genius challenge, especially, once again, it being inspired by another American movie, Speed, a classic, which actually features Keanu Reeves, who's Canadian, but... It was pointed out on the Bob's Bar Discord this week that the theme of this season is basically just movies, exclamation point. And obviously that lends to the episode titles and all that sort of stuff, but this is such a pitch-perfect movie reference. It is a real shame they couldn't make them do below 50 miles an hour every time, but I think <laughs> health and safety might have had a problem with them having a stunt driver drive up to the bus and throw pliers at them at 50 miles an hour. 20 miles is still pretty fast. Yeah, 20 miles an hour is still very much fast enough to do damage to people. Yeah, as soon as I caught on that it was a speed parody, I started laughing out loud. So did I. The points where I laughed in this episode most were the start of Lancelot's PowerPoint with the waving Belgian flag, the comic sands, and the, the greatest country on earth tagline. The start of this bus challenge where I'm like, this fucking show again. And when they started showing us the fake adverts on the bus. So if they can dismantle the bomb within an hour, they earn 5,000 euros. The bomb is at the back of the bus, but locked away. And to get the key, they have to manoeuvre a ball through to a key symbol using the momentum from the bus. Comfort and Ruben have a laptop and have to answer three movie questions. Who played the bomber in Speed? Which film the FBI don't appear in from a list? And which film doesn't have an explosion from a list? The more they get right, the more detailed the sketch that they will receive of the bomber is. They get all three right, and a very precise composite photo. When the first question popped up and they were debating for it, I think I spent about two minutes saying, Dennis Hopper, it's Dennis Hopper, it's Dennis Hopper. Pick Dennis Hopper, Jesus Christ, it's Dennis Hopper. Dennis Hopper is a very distinct actor. You're not going to mix him up with somebody else. I still don't think there is a greater trivia question like this that they have ever asked than in the Mexico family visit challenge at the drive-in movie theater, asking Peter to spell Matty McConaughey's surname. <laughs> yeah, that's I right. still think that that is one of the greatest quiz moments in television history, and it's not even on a quiz show. Because it's so nasty. It's the race across the world of quiz questions. So they eventually get the ball into the hole and the key is released and they find a keypad and are told to enter the destination on the bus. Would you have gotten all three questions right, including the atomic blonde one? I would have definitely got the Dennis Hopper one. The other two I wouldn't have been as certain on. Because I'm not big on my movies, as you well know. Yeah, I would have gotten the first two, but... The Atomic Blonde one, I wouldn't have... I don't even know what I would have guessed because it went by too quickly. I was still debating it by the time they picked one. As you well know, the only time that I go to the cinema anymore is Marvel films and the Mario movie. Did you enjoy the Mario movie, by the way? I forgot to ask you that before we started recording. Um, yeah, yeah, I thought... I mean, 
again, you're not if if you're a movie critic, you really have no choice but to say it wasn't that good because there really wasn't depth to it. But as an adult who went with uh, my as an adult that went with my nephew and niece to it, who are very much into Mario, and as somebody myself who also plays a lot of Mario games, it was a very fun movie theater experience of like, oh, Mario Kart reference. Oh, there's Don- there's Seth Rogen playing the voice of uh, Donkey Kong. And then the Easter egg of when they went into the underground area and there was a sign that said World 1-2 or when at the end when there's the big battle and you see the sign for Punch-Out Pizzeria. Those were fun to spot during the movie. As I said a couple of weeks ago, the critics have been a bit miserable about it because it is just a very fun film. If you go into it expecting Schindler's List, then you'll be disappointed. But if you go into it expecting a Mario film, you'll be thoroughly delighted, I would say. Well, especially compared to the 1993 film that was the only Mario movie up until this point. So, using the adverts on the bus, they can find out who the bomber is, thanks to the sketch, and that gives them... (laughs) So many mustaches! And that gives them the tool that they will need to defuse it. Obviously, nothing greater than the pediatrician one, but there was another couple of brilliant ones... There was the plumber who had a rhyming tagline. The guy who they ended up going for was a guy called Ernesto Tambiru, who um, I think he was a phone engineer or something. And his tagline was something along the lines of, E.T. can help you phone. (laughs) I guess I was in too much of a rush to finish this episode before the podcast by the third challenge. It is very much worth re-watching the bit where they show all the, the posters, because there are some brilliant sight gags in there. Imagine being the, uh, the, the locals who are forever immortalized on Belgian reality television because of this challenge. Yeah. The other thing I do want to say as well is, of the, I think it's three posters that we saw, definitely, all of them have phone numbers and websites, and two of those websites have not been registered. Hmm. Will they be registered? Usually, if there is a website that is shown on screen, SBS or Avro, whoever's producing it, will register it secretly, months in advance. To stop, let's be honest, idiots doing it and redirecting it to things. Now, hypothetically, not telling people to do this, but if anyone wanted to buy one of those domains and redirect it to rtvwarriors.com, I would appreciate it. Because I'm not going to do it, because I can't afford it, but... Or fund our Patreon, and then Michael will do it. Yeah, I mean... I'll say it, special this week, if anyone subscribes on the Patreon, then I will register one of those addresses and redirects it to rtvwarriors.com. But yeah, these posters were just done with such delight and love, and I thoroughly enjoyed them. So the FBI team get a photo from the printer of speed camera photos, and Comfort realises the bus can be caught on a speed camera on the track that they're riding around. If they go over 35 miles an hour past the camera, it will send the FBI team a picture. Once they know the location, they can leave the office, go to a stunt driver, and get there quickly. When they open the case, they find out that underneath the bus is an indication of what colour they will need to cut. When they arrive, they realise they needed pliers, so picked the wrong bomber. Classic case of picking the wrong bomber. It happens in all these films, and it usually doesn't end very well. The FBI team find a remote control car with a GoPro attached, and they have to drive it underneath the bus to find out the colour of the board. This was just asking for that car to get crushed. Yeah. It was a write-off for the budget. Yeah, obviously Toast was driving, so the mole wasn't driving the bus. But seriously, anyone who didn't expect that GoPro to get crushed under the wheel of a bus is incredibly naive. I wonder if the GoPro survived. Probably not. Because when the camera feed cut out for Comfort and Reuben, there was a big old crack in that lens. There's no way that that survived. They're pretty sturdy things, though. Yeah, but the lens got cracked, and it had a multiple-ton bus roll over it. I wish they would auction it off to on a fan site. Who wants the cracked GoPro from the speed challenge of Belgian Mole? So on a first pass, no one sees the colour under the bus, so they have to have a second attempt. And on the second attempt, the car gets crushed, so they have to guess either green or yellow, depending on who they trust. Stunt driver then drives alongside the bus for the pliers to be thrown. Ruben makes the shots, and they cut yellow, which was his choice. 
for a total of nothing at 5,000 euros for the challenge, 500 euros of 17,000 for the episode, and 17,320 of 75,500 euros for the season so far. I am shocked they went with Ruben instead of Comfort. Do you think it goes back a little bit to the fact that she was saved? That they That's the reason why they think she's the mole? That's the reason they don't necessarily trust her. Because they don't want to give her any advantage if they think that she's got an advantage from being saved. She knows who the mole isn't, and she's the most likely to win the money. Oh, that they're intentionally decreasing the amount that's in the pot so Comfort doesn't win as much at the end of the season? Yeah. That would be too bitter of a way to play, I think. I think you still got to try and earn money for the pot. You can't... Then you effectively ha have four moles instead of one. Given Ruben's behavior, I have no idea why they trusted him. Because yes, he's incredibly, incredibly entertaining for us to watch. But I think a character like Ruben, who goofs off at every opportunity... I mean, in the FBI office, he was, at one point, just sat there with his feet up eating Dunkin' Donuts. <laughs> Opening, <laughs> I think Ruben may be a little bit frustrating to be around if you are trying to compete against him on this show. Ruben could really be an American cop. Yeah. I mean, I've never felt more of a kindred spirit with Ruben than when he was sat there with his feet up eating Dunkin' Donuts. But also, I think it probably would infuriate me if I was comfort at that point. Ruben's probably thinking, ah, Lancelot's going to find a way to screw this up anyway. Why bother? Uh, I'm surprised that the explosion from the bomb wasn't more significant. It made it sound like all three of them had died and that uh, Comfort and Ruben were about to do the final quiz of the season. It should have been a paint bomb. Yes. It was a, more of a smoke bomb, it looked like. Yeah, it was. And I was impressed that production was able to put that table maze together inside the bus and have it only be able to move based on the movements of the bus. Yeah, that was very clever. Especially as it did look like a normal bus to me. I'd love to know how they managed to make that work where they didn't have to attach too much infrastructure to the bus itself. And then to also point out Yakima being a destination, I thought that was an inside reference to me, considering I've talked about on this podcast before, that I always visit my aunt and cousin uh, every year in Yakima for the first 16 years of my life. So I was surprised, like, oh, Yakima. Hmm. Coincidence? Every, everything in this show is a reference to this podcast. That's certainly the logic that I adhere to. Yeah. Delusions of grandeur, right? Exactly. So it's time for the test. 20 questions on the identity and actions of the mole. Whoever knows least goes home except for the mole who can never go home. Lancelot says that three of them watched the cars with wide eyes. It took a huge swing at the last second to go right under the wheel of the bus. Toast says that Reuben gave the wrong colour and drove the car under the bus, making it impossible to win. Reuben says he's kind of colourblind, but they went under it quickly, and if the driver makes a small adjustment, it's easy to do. Comfort says she hasn't paid much attention to Reuben. Today was the first time she was alone with him. He does a lot without doing much, and he didn't get anything correct in the FBI challenge. Thomas says that if he's the mole, he takes his hat off to Reuben. He said that he wouldn't follow his gut originally, so wrote Reuben off as a contestant. Yeah, just really interesting thing to note is that with Reuben saying that it was yellow, you think, does that mean... Ruben is the mole with that sabotage, because 5,000 euro sabotage is really big for Belgian mole. Or is it that just pure coincidence that he said the wrong color and then the mole inside the bus was able to convince at least one other person to vote for Ruben? Because it was Tooze, Tooze was the only one shown saying, Ruben said yellow, therefore I'm going with Ruben. And then Thomas said, it's green, I'm going for comfort. We don't see Lancelot advocating for either of them off the bat, which means Lancelot would have had to had to have been the deciding vote then to for them to go with Reuben. And if you're an editor with editing, you think it was that intentional to not show Lancelot as as advocating for one or the other, because then that means Lancelot by far and away is responsible for so much money being lost this episode. So Thomas's name is typed in, and it is an instant red screen. The rare insta red. And he was covering his mouth the whole time that he saw his name being typed in. It's as if he knew he was going home that round. Did anyone discuss splitting on the quiz, or is everyone just on one suspect now? Don't think anyone mentioned splitting. But, I mean, their final five, as we'll get into in a minute with our suspicions, you should be on one suspect now. Yeah. 
Thomas says he was super eager to make it to the end. Comfort describes him as the best cheerleader ever. He's super encouraging, and he wasn't ready to leave. Lancelot says it's awkward that he's leaving. He was one of the group, but he was still the old man of the group. Toast says he used his age as an advantage occasionally. David O'Leary. If he needed a comfy bed or wanted to play bingo, then he used his age. And he gives Jill a kiss on the way out. Now, did you spot what happened when he drove off the screen? It turned. It went back to 1985. Uh, no, in in fact, harking back to the discussion at the start of the uh, the start of the fifteenth day, a cactus actually falls. What? I had to rewind a couple of times, and I'm assuming that it was CGI, but a cactus does indeed start to fall as uh, as his car drives away. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, it's just a brilliant sight gag again. So next time, everything goes a bit country as Lancelot talks about sperm whale piss and comfort falls from a hammock. We don't see Papa Bear kissing all of the other contestants like Thomas requested. We don't. Do you think he did? Probably not. Just without any context, he just starts kissing everybody. Why are you doing this? Thomas told me to. I I have to It was his final wish. So with Thomas going home, your sole hope is now Pastry Chef Reuben. I still have Lancelot, Comfort, and Toast guaranteeing me two of the final three. I will also say, given the intrigue on whether we were going to switch at all last week, I dodged a massive bullet, because if I was going to take anyone from your team, it would have been Thomas last week. So I was very, very relieved when he went home. Yep. I did say it last week, I needed Thomas or Lancelot to go home, just so I knew who to go full beans on this week. So in First Suspicions, our current equal leaders with a score of 11 where the minimum is 10 are Vidomicon, Jan Kiriman, and April Bride 15, whereas our current losers are my first impressions list and our very own David Bindley's first impressions list. Oh, how fun. Yeah, I think we both have 23 points, which is actually quite depressing given the theoretical maximum would be 36. Five people, Jan Kiriman, Jack, April Bride 15, Bindles, and me all on First Suspicions, have a score of 13 or lower, and interestingly, no one has a score of below 15 on First Impressions. Two people, Sandra's First Impressions and David's First Suspicions, had him at number one, while two people, Jack and Natalie's First Impressions, had him at number nine. And the order is, as it has been for a few weeks, Lancelot on 2.32 out of four, then Reuben on 2.44, Comfort on 2.6, and Toast on 2.64. Adding us in changes absolutely nothing, but we suspect Lancelot, Reuben, and Comfort more than the group as a whole do. We can, as always, do the bothers about suspect list each week at suspectlist.rtbwires.com or the link in our bio. And I will say this now, if you're playing suspect list, you have two more weeks to use your Joker if you haven't. Before asking you who you suspect, because I know the answer, I'm going to tell you who Belgium suspected. Because last week, production told us who Belgium suspected after five episodes... Number one was Thomas with 23.2. What? Thomas was number one? Yeah. Thomas was number one last week with 23.2, followed by Ruben on 21.4, Toast on 20.1, Lancelot on 18.1, and Comfort on 17.2. Interesting. As I said, we're down to one suspect. I know this is going to shock me. Who is your one suspect? Lancelot. Shocker. (laughs) It's Lancelot, and then... Ruben, gigantic gap, twos and comfort. I don't think I'm even really paying attention to the other two anymore. My order is Lancelot, then Toast, then Ruben, then Comfort. But I mean, the bottom three are all pretty much randomized at this point. Yeah, it is that big of a gap for you at this point, eh? Yeah, 100%. I mean, I'm, I should be very confident that I've got them all in my pool team. I'm pretty sure that it's Lancelot. If it is Lancelot, I'm going to be absolutely gutted from a suspect list point of view, because I had him at number one in week one, then dropped him a little bit, and then only restored him last week, which is literally what happened with Georgia. So history may repeat itself in a couple of weeks. Imagine if he gets executed before the finale. Oh god, it'd be hilarious. I mean, I wouldn't be opposed to it, just because the sheer (laughs) panic that would happen next week would be hilarious from both of us. But yeah, I mean, it's Lancelot. I think I may have spotted a clue or two in this episode. The first of which was in the Mold's Puppet chats with people. Lancelot's the only person who we don't see the puppet say hello to. He says, Dag Rubin, 
Dagtos, Dag Comfort, but he just says Lancelot. Huh. And the other thing is the letter grid on the bus was very interesting because it wasn't a normal keyboard. It was 16 letters 4 by 4 And I've spotted that there are only two people of the final five that you can actually spell the name of in that grid. One of them's obviously Lancelot, which is impressive given it's eight characters. The other is obviously Toast, because that's only three unique characters. Right. But Lancelot, you can spell his name on that grid. You cannot spell Reuben, you cannot spell Comfort. Which is very interesting, I think. That's the sort of hint they like to put in, and if it was just leading to one person's name, I'd be more confident that that was actually a clue. But there's something interesting about the grid not being the traditional European layout, not being the traditional QWERTY layout. It's just seemingly 16 random letters. It'd be interesting if you did pick up on those clues. Yeah. Because the letters are, I actually took a screenshot of this, A-N-L-C, D-U-F-I, E-K-V-Y-O-S-M-T. Final question then, who do you think is going to be our fourth placer? Who did I guess last week? Did I guess Thomas is going home? We both guessed uh, Thomas and Comfort would be probably the next two people. Yeah, maybe it is Comfort's time. Tuus and Ruben have quite the have quite the alliance going on, it seems. Yeah, I feel like this episode especially has led us towards the fact that Toast and Ruben are going to be a, a pair going into the finale, and one of them is going to win, one of them is going to lose. So yeah, I think we're probably getting another all-male final three, to be honest. Yeah, high probability. Whoever it's going to be, though, it's going to be very entertaining to talk to the three remaining people. I'm very excited to talk to any of these people, to be honest. And obviously try and make them call you a deviant, because that's what I'm there for. <laughs> Have you got anything else you want to say? Uh, No, no, I think I'm good. Wonderful. In that case... Thank you for listening to our Demolverkia Season 11 recap. We're back next week to continue the hunt for the newest mall in Arizona. Don't forget you can contact us on Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, or Instagram where we are RTV Warriors, or you can email us and contact at rtvwarriors.com. Logan's on Twitter at Luxacracky, and I'm MJ Halmstone. You can also support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash rtvwarriors. See you next week. Peace out and just chill till the next of flavoring.